You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Oxford bar was almost empty, and John Rebus had the back room to himself. He sat in the corner with a view of the doorway. It was something you learned as a cop. Anyone coming in who might mean trouble, you wanted as much warning as you could get. Not that Rebus was expecting trouble, not here, and besides, he was no longer a cop. A month since his retirement, he'd gone quietly in the end, demanding no fanfare, turning down the offer of a drink with Clark and Fox. Siobhan Clark had phoned him a few times since on various pretexts. He'd always managed to find some excuse not to meet up. Even Fox had got in touch. Fox, ex-professional standards, a man who tried snaring Rebus many a time, calling in an awkward attempt to share gossip before getting to the point. How was Rebus doing? Was he coping? Ian Rankin is the author of 20 novels featuring Detective Inspector John Rebus. He's won the Edgar Award, the Golden Dagger, the Diamond Dagger for Lifetime Achievement, and the Chandler Fulbright Award. He brought back Rebus into print with Standing in Another Man's Grave and Saints of the Shadow Bible. His most recent works are The Beat Goes On, the complete John Rebus short stories, and a new novel, Even Dogs in the Wild. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Hey, thank you. This is such a wonderful, complicated book about the most wonderful and complicated things in our lives, family and work. Yeah, there's a lot of intergenerational uh, action in this book. A lot of fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, brothers and sisters. Yeah, I mean, it really is a book about the baton that we hand from one generation to the next and the harm that can be done by one generation to the generation coming up behind them and what happens to that, what the, the ramifications of that are. So there's all kinds of fathers and sons, especially in this book. And I don't know if that's me talking about me and my sons. I'm not exactly sure. Not that either of them, as far as I know, are criminals. But it's, you know, it's just, I think as you get older, there are certain things that start to interest you as themes that wouldn't have interested you as themes in your books when you were a young man. Speaking of getting older, we have Detective John Rebus, no longer a detective, he has entered a career that is not unlike the most famous mystery icon ever created. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter how famous I ever get or how famous Rebus gets. We'll only ever be the second string to Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> Edinburgh born, Edinburgh educated when he was, I don't know, 19, 20, 21, never came back to Edinburgh, but um, his detective, Sherlock Holmes, was heavily based on one of Conan Doyle's professors at Edinburgh University when he was studying to be a doctor. And yeah, so Rebus in this book is a little nod towards Sherlock Holmes, becomes a consulting detective. In other words, he's retired. He's not quite a private eye, but he's somebody that people will come to for help if there's nobody else to go to. And he has a lot of friends in this novel on both sides of the law. And what's interesting to me is that he's probably one of the most morose characters I've ever read. And I love how morose he is. And I think the people around him do as well. And But when you inhabit that morose a man, 
uh, how do you like come out of your shell, go into his? I don't know. I mean, I don't exactly know where he came from originally, but I just knew the kind of character he would be. I mean, someone who's been a detective for the best part of their work in life, dealing with the kinds of things they deal with on a day to day basis is going to be fairly cynical about human nature, fairly cynical about the state of the world, about society from top to bottom. And a detective, of course, has an all areas pass. So he can go, he can be talking to the bureaucrats, the, the politicians and the CEOs one minute and the disenfranchised, the dispossessed, the next. And that's why I choose to write about him is because he gives me a broad overview of society from top to bottom in Edinburgh and Scotland from top to bottom. Where he came from, I'm not exactly sure, but I thought he's going to be quite a dark character. This is a guy who deals with, with crime and who thinks that the human race are, are, kind of, are damned. And all crime fiction, I think, is predicated upon that central question of why we human beings keep doing bad things to each other. Generation after generation, culture after culture, why do we keep doing bad things to each other? And crime doesn't seem to go away, you know? And I think it's because we're, we're almost back to the seven deadly sins. The reason that most crime happens is, you know, envy and greed and gluttony and everything else, and passion. And those never go away. They are, they are constants. No matter how society changes, crime always remains. One of the things I was thinking about your books is they really are beautifully observed uh, portraits of life as people live it. And, and you've done made very clear that keeping John Rebus chronological is important to you to, to work within the span of his life. And I was thinking, too, about when you observe life in general, it, the difference between life and story is that life goes on and stories have resolutions. But one part of life that does actually offer people resolutions are crime. And that's why crime is, I think, such a wonderful place for you to unearth story. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of comfort in reading um, a mystery novel in that by the end of the book, most, if not all, of your questions have been answered. There has been a satisfactory resolution. And, you know, real life ain't always like that. Mm -mm. And I do like the occasional loose or ragged ending to a book. Readers don't always like it, but I like it because I think it makes it more lifelike. The thing is that fiction has to be realistic. The real world does not have to be realistic. I hear dozens of stories <laughs> from cops and criminals, and they're great stories, but I couldn't use them because they're too ridiculous, they're too outlandish, they're too fantastical, but they actually happened. But um, fiction has to be realistic. I have to make you believe these things could happen, even if they haven't actually happened. But usually my books begin with somebody telling me a story. This one began with somebody in a bar in a village in Scotland, recognized me and said, oh, I've got a good story for you. Now, this happens a lot, but the stories aren't always usable. But this guy told me, he said, we used a, a suspected drug dealer who lived in this village and he died of natural causes and word went around that he had buried a stash of drugs and money in the woods. And so over a weekend, the villagers would pick up shovels and spades and stuff and they would head into the woods and have a little dig to see if they could find this buried treasure. And I liked this notion of a treasure hunt. I just liked that notion. And when it came time to write this book, that was transformed into two Glasgow gangsters, father and son, who've been double-crossed uh, by an associate and they come hunting for the associate, whatever it is he's taken from them that they want back. So that was it. That, that notion of the treasure hunt started with somebody in a bar in a village in Scotland telling me a story. How interesting. You mentioned a word I think that is vital to this book, associate. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, the, yeah, well done for picking up on that one. Yeah, I mean, Even Dogs in the Wild is a, is a song by the Associates. Mostly the last few books I've written have been, uh, the titles have been taken from songs or lyrics. And this one just jumped out at me. There is a theme that emerges, a story, a plot that emerges halfway through the book, and we'd be spoiling it if we said what it was. So don't go listening to the lyrics of this song before you read the book, because the lyrics kind of give it away. But in general, what the song is about, I would say, is, is I mean, even dogs in the wild. The line goes, even dogs in the wild could do better than this. I.e., human beings sometimes treat each other and their offspring worse than wild animals do. I, I thought that that line, even dogs in the wild could do better than this, pretty much summed up Rebus. <laughs> in, in kind of. And in this book, I actually give him a dog to look after as well, which is quite <laughs> fun. That let's talk a little bit about the dog and dogs in fiction because there's something about when uh, writers bring a dog in. I think it's a difficult thing to do, and I think you do a great job with Rebus and the dog. And was that a hard decision for you? To <laughs> I, you know, I just because I had the title even Dogs in the Wild, I thought wouldn't it be nice if there was a stray dog in the book somewhere? So I wrote a little note to myself about it. Then went and wrote the first draft, having forgotten that. Went back and reread my notes and thought, oh, I forgot to put the dog in. Do I need the dog? Do I want to do the dog? And I thought, yeah, that could be quite fun. It'll be different. So Brillo, the dog, came into the second draft of the book. <laughs> and it was kind of funny because when people read the book, they would say things like, oh, I thought the dog was going to be a clue, or I thought the dog would lead us to this or lead us to that or another plot. But it's a stray dog, and Rebus is kind of forced into looking after it because nobody else is going to. And he keeps trying to lay, lay the dog off to anybody and everybody he meets throughout the book, which gives you these moments of humour, which I think you need in, in quite dark fiction. You know, the, 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 the bleakest Shakespearean tragedy always has a little shaft of light in it somewhere. And I like it when a little shaft of light emerges, a one-liner, a joke, a pun, something that Rebus says. But the dog allows us that little bit of levity, I think, and also shows us that Rebus, he tries to be the tough guy, he tries to be the hard guy. He tries to be cynical about human nature, but at heart, he's a good guy. He has a heart. And if he is, if he's your 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 last refuge, he's going to be your last refuge. He will look after you. What it means now, though, problematically for me, is I've got to remember the dog in future books. <laughs> the dog can't suddenly disappear from Rebus. People will say, "Where's the dog? Where's the dog? Why is Rebus not looking after the dog? Why? How can he go away to Glasgow? And who's feeding the dog?" So I'm going to have to take that on board now. So, you know, that's just an extra little bit of baggage for me and for Rebus. But I think that could play out quite nicely. <laughs> you have, uh, this book is really interesting because uh, you have so many uh, balls in the air, so many strings, and it's really, I think, very nicely complicated. And I, as a writer, what you do is you keep things that are, just maybe just at the edges of the reader's ability to keep all the balls juggling. You're juggling just a little bit faster than we are. When you are writing this and then going back and rereading it, uh, do you have to, do you like calibrate what you think the reader is going to be able to keep in with what you know already as a writer? I suppose so. I mean, I think that's very hard to judge when you're the writer of the book. Mm. I mean, once you've written it, you can't read it as a reader anymore because you know what's coming up. So it's the most important part for me is after the second draft is written. Nobody sees the first draft because the first draft is very ragged. It's just making sure the plot works, the bare bones of the plot work. Because when I start writing the book, I don't know where it's going to go. Mm. I kind of know where I would like it to go, but the book may have other ideas. I kind of know as little about where it's going to go as the detectives. 
But then when I, the first draft is done, I go, okay, I need to tidy this up now and, and make it all seem like it was always meant to be that way. Then I show the second draft to my wife. So she's my first reader. And she reads a lot of fiction. She reads a lot of mystery fiction. And she will say to me, I don't understand. I'm a bit confused here. Or this character is not as interesting as he could be. Or you don't need this character. And I will actually go through it again. And she's usually right, you know. She's reading it as a reader. And she reads a lot. And she's quite strict. So by the time I've then written it again and I've done a third draft, by the time I show it to my publisher and my agent, I'm fairly confident this is now a good story, a good, tight story. And they may, I mean, my agent, not so much, but the publisher may say, can you just tighten this up a little bit or can you change this a little bit or can you maybe change that character a little bit? Um, but mostly I'll, I'll say, well, are you sure? Because that's making it a different book, but I don't think that's making it a better book. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time it goes to the publisher, I'm usually fairly confident. But there'll be a little bit of negotiation. There'll be maybe a few changes that are made. But my wife is my most important reader. Family is incredibly important in this book. And you create so many families so well and so many different spins on the same relationship. Uh, I think let's talk a little bit about the gangsters in this book. There's, uh, you have a lot of them, and, and they're both fun and poignant and uh, scary. And that's a difficult trick to pu- pull off. How do you turn those screws? Is, there, is it like a, playing a musical instrument? <laughs> I think what it is is just being empathetic. I think if you're a writer, if you're a novelist, you're empathetic. You look at the world around you. You think about how people's lives might be. And I just thought, okay, I want some gangsters. They've come over from Glasgow to Edinburgh. Oh, it's probably a father and son. Well, in those kind of relationships, you've sometimes the family business is about to be passed from one to the other. So that comes on board, and you think, well, if you're gangsters, the the old guy, the dad, Joe Stark, may not necessarily want to cede control of the family firm to the son just yet, but the son might be getting a little bit anxious and itchy and might think, well, whether dad likes it or not, I'm taking over. So, you, so straight away I'm thinking like that. I'm thinking, so that could be going on. Um, it's already happened to a large extent in Edinburgh because my gangster in Edinburgh, uh, Big Jer Cafferty, has kind of stepped off the field of play to a large extent, we think, because a young gangster has come along who he mentored, kind of, in in one of the previous books, who's now taken over the control of of Edinburgh. Um, And it seems like Cafferty's been quite happy to just retire and let this bloodless coup happen, but we're not 100% sure if that's the case or not. Cafferty continues to... He always surprises me. I'm never quite sure what games he's playing. He likes to play head games with people. From Rebus down, he likes to play head games with people. He enjoys that. And I'm never very sure what he's up to, and, and neither is anybody else. So there's that going on. And, yeah, I mean, I just I thought that was quite interesting, this kind of battle of the generations, and this, this brings in tension straight away and tells you a lot about the family relationships, you know? I mean, the, the father feels he's never been able to emotionally collect, connect to the son because if you're a gangster, you can't show feelings, you can't show weakness in front of everybody. So, so the son has grown up without perhaps the amount of attention he should have had or the learning the life lessons that he should have been taught. And so, yeah, so the, that whole relationship's going on. And that then is balanced again, things like Malcolm Fox, whose father is frail, who may be on his way out, and Fox's sister thinks that Fox really hasn't been as filial, as good a, a son as he could be, that he's just pretended to feel emotions rather than really feel emotions, and she's overly emotional, as Fox himself thinks. 
Rebus reconnects with his daughter. There's an awful lot of that going on in the book. And I didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as conscious as that might make it sound. When I was mm. writing the first draft of the book, I really didn't know there was quite as much of that in the book as there was. It was only when I read it back through, I thought, oh, hang on. You know, this is about passing the baton from one generation to the next. It's about, it's maybe about me letting go of my sons who are in their 20s and kind of thinking, did I do the right things? Did I bring them up as well as I could have done? Could I have changed anything? Um, are they prepared for the world? Am I ready to let go? Well, also, Rebus. You have had to let Rebus go as well. I mean, Rebus had this long career, and you had to... He's also your son in, in many ways. <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> now, he's, he's like the big brother I never had, mm. I think. He's like the big brother who left high school at 15, 16, and went to join the army. When I was growing up, in, where I grew up in Scotland, it was a little mining village, coal mining, but the coal basically ran out in the early 60s. There was a lot of depression, um, a lot of unemployment. And when I was at high school, when I was 15, 16, a lot of my friends who were preparing to leave school because they weren't going to go on to college or university, the only jobs available to them were the armed forces or the police. You know, So I had guys I knew who either went to the army or the navy or the air force, or else they joined the police. One guy I still know from high school, he was a police officer for many years. So that's what Rebus did. Rebus was that kind of, you know, he, he, he wasn't clever enough in inverted commas, didn't pass all the exams to go into university. So he left school and did what he had to do. He, he got a job and he got the only job available to him. He joined the army and then when he was kicked out of the army, he eventually applied to the police and joined. So it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, a lot of my family were in the, were in the armed services. My, um, one of my sisters married a guy who was in the Royal Air Force. Both my nephews from that marriage joined the Royal Air Force. So there was a lot of, you know, my dad had served in the army during World War II. There was a lot of armed forces stuff around. And um, I was never a big, tough kid. I was never physical. I was never going to get a job like that. I was clever. I was, I was bookish. I was quiet. I was shy. Um, so maybe Rebus was a way of vicariously having a life of action that I was never going to have as a real person. And maybe uh, you're more on the Malcolm side of things. Oh, I'm much more like Malcolm. I'm an amalgam of Malcolm Fox and Siobhan Clark. <laughs> you know? I mean, Siobhan Clark is university educated. She's cautious. She's careful. Fox is similar. Um, but she's driven. I think Malcolm's driven as well. But, they, but they're not mavericks. And I'm not a maverick, I wouldn't say. Rebus always has a great comeback line. I always think of the comeback line two hours too late, you know? <laughs> I get home and think of the comeback line. And Rebus has physical bulk and heft, and he's not afraid of confrontation, and I'll do anything to avoid confrontation. So, yeah, I'm much more... Malcolm is much more the kind of cop I would have been had I joined the police, which is kind of towing a line, working well on a team, um, being thorough, being thorough, but definitely not being a maverick. This book has so many interesting strands, and I think I'm, in general, one of the great pleasures of the mystery genre, is a book will open with lots of really different things happening, and we know that those are going to get honed down, and the way they get winnowed down, and the way the strands are woven together is one of the real pleasures of reading this, and I I love what Malcolm is doing. And because he is not well liked in the police department, is he? 
No, it's one of the interesting things. I mean, when I invented Malcolm Fox, he was working for Internal Affairs. And I thought, well, this is intriguing because nobody's going to think this guy is Rebus 2.0. No. He's the anti-Rebus. Rebus <laughs> is the kind of cop he would be investigating. So he's careful, cautious, works in a team. He's almost like a spy within the police. He's got a lot of surveillance equipment at his disposal, and he will cautiously, patiently look at a cop who's supposed to be dirty and get into their life, and it will take months to put together a case against them, maybe. But then someone who'd worked in internal affairs in Scotland said to me, hey, you know you don't go into internal affairs for your whole life, you go in for four or five years. I thought, well, wait a minute, Malcolm's been in there for four or five years. What happens after? Oh, you go back into being regular police again. You go back to being detective. But everybody hates you. <laughs> Nobody trusts you. Well, you of know? course And not. I thought, well, this is going to be really interesting. I mean, this is what an interesting step to take someone from internal affairs, put them back into CID, detective work, surrounded by, I mean, villains hate them because they're cops, but cops hate them because they used to bust cops. And so building up trust and building up friends and allies is Malcolm's main goal when we first meet him in the Rebus comeback book and standing in the man's grave. And he's very antagonistic to Rebus in that book because Rebus has come back and Malcolm thinks there shouldn't be a place in the modern-day police for somebody like Rebus. He's a dinosaur. So he basically tries to get him kicked out again. But he starts to learn that Rebus has qualities um, and strengths that are interesting and useful. And so the two become uneasy colleagues for a while. In Saints of the Shadow Bible, there's a very uneasy truce between them. And in this book, they're kind of edging towards an understanding and a kind of, maybe not quite a friendship. But they're, they know they're both working towards the same goal, which is putting the bad guys away. And at the same time, Malcolm has a family life. He's got a sister and he's got a dad and Rebus doesn't have any of that, but he can relate to some of it because he had a brother who he was, wasn't friendly with and he, they had, their parents had died quite early on in, in, in the in the, in the the, the life of Rebus and his brother. So all that stuff is kind of there in the background. And what it does is it kind of, I don't know, it gives you a kind of more three-dimensional sense of the characters, that it's not just about the plot, it's not just about them leading the reader from one scene to the next to find clues, to solve mysteries, and to put away the bad guy, that they've also got lives. They've got lives outside these stories that are resonating beyond the novel itself. That's uh, This is really a, a very character-driven work. I mean, it, it, this is... Uh, more than a search to solve a crime, this is a search for identity. Rebus trying to figure out who he is after his retirement. Uh, Siobhan Clark trying to figure out who she is with these two men. Mm -hmm. Malcolm trying to figure out who he is after being kicked out of or after leaving complaints. We have Big Jer. You mentioned Big Jer. <laughs> I love Big Jer. He is a lot of fun, and I can tell you have a lot of fun when you're writing this character. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems I have with a character like Rebus or indeed a character like Big Jer Cafferty is they suck all the air out of the room. <laughs> so if Rebus enters a scene... Siobhan Clark, Malcolm Fox pretty much disappear. I've got to work really hard to make them, you know, stand out, come into focus, because Rebus is there sucking all the energy away from them. And when Rebus comes up against Caffrey, who's a very similar kind of character, you do get that amazing, it's like two heavyweights in the ring. Mm -hmm. And in fact, towards the end of the book, they're having this kind of, this kind of conversation about they both hope they've got one good fight left in them, mm. you know? Because they are men of a certain age, the world is kind of whizzing by, the world is changing, they're wondering, do I still have a role in the world? Do I still have a place in the world? Can I still make a difference to the world? Um, and, and so they're just wondering, you know, what is left for me in, in, to do? 
And, uh, yeah, it's really interesting when the two of them get together. It's always a lot of fun to write those scenes because they are very three-dimensional characters. But I think, you know, the nice thing about doing a series of books is that the characters do get the chance to develop. When I invented Siobhan Clark, she was invented as a, as a foil for Rebus, somebody who could do the, the Dr. Watson thing, mm -hmm. Ask, asking Rebus, where are you going? Why are you going here? What are you doing? What are you up to? What's happening next? All the questions the reader wants to ask. Um, but she took on a life of her own. She became much more three-dimensional to me. She became a very interesting character. Fox, I think, has grown in stature as a character. He's trying to be a bit of a maverick, but he's not suited out for it. And he's trying and trying, and it's just not him. <laughs> um, he's trying to prove himself to his dad that he's a good detective. He's trying to prove to the world that he's a good detective, and sometimes that makes him make some pretty bad decisions, or decisions that work out badly for him. So these are all people that have kind of, you know, I've grown up with them. I mean, mm. you kind of said that already, but I've grown up with them. And so have the readers. I had one reader who came to an event I did a couple of nights ago. And she started reading the books when she was 14. And she's now nearly 30. And wow. she's, you know, as, Re as Rebus and the other characters of mm -hmm. age, so has she aged. And she's developed. And she's really enjoyed that, that journey. Well, that's, I think, one of the things that uh, you and I have spoken about before, is that you really do want to keep you to time. And... This book, I think, what's interesting about this book is that here we are, we're um, 15 years into the 21st century, and I think it's only now that we're really beginning to feel that the 20th century has actually left and that we're really, the few, we're pretty firmly embedded in what many of us thought would be the future. I mean, I was kind of expecting the future to be more like this around like 1995, 20 years <laughs> ago and when I was a kid. Where's our jetpacks, though? We want jetpacks. Yeah. <laughs> we want jetpacks. We want, we want sort of interstellar space drives. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's true. And when I go back and look at the early books, which I occasionally do, they read to me like historical novels. Mm. Nobody has a computer in the office. Nobody's a computer at home. The fax machine is a little god that sits in the corner, and if it chunters away with a new message, you've, it must be important. To make a phone call, Rebus has to stop his car at a phone booth and hope it's working. There's no cell phones, there's no email, there's no um, direct messaging or internet messaging or anything like that. It's extraordinary, the changes. And the problem for the crime writer is that the changes in technology have impinged on how crimes are now dealt with. So you've got to know about it because you can be sure the reader knows about it. So I've got to keep in touch with the police and say, OK, what's happening with forensics, any new developments in DNA technology? Um, and there's no such thing as an insoluble crime now because all the crimes are just waiting for the technology to come along to solve them. There was one real life one in, in, in Edinburgh actually, it's called The World's End Murders. Two girls in 1977 who were last seen in a bar called The World's End in Edinburgh ended up dead the next morning in, in a field outside the city. They just got the guy a couple of years ago. Really? Because they'd kept the girls clothing, they got the DNA technology had got, got so advanced that they could actually get DNA fingerprints from their clothing that wouldn't have been possible even five years ago. And so when he got a guy for something else and got his DNA, they got a match. Wow. You know? And so you've got to be up with that. And that, the, also changes in the way that the policing is done in Scotland. We've had a huge reorganization in the last few years. Somehow in the next book, I'm going to have to take that on board. I've mm. tried to sidestep it in this book a little bit, but next book, it's got to come on board. And so if somebody like Siobhan Clark, for example, who at one time, if it was a murder in Edinburgh, she would be in charge or she'd be central to the investigation. What they're now doing is parachuting in a crack team who are just put together for the, for, to do this murder case. 
and they're given a room in a police station and they come in and they, and they bring on local cops as and when they need to. And that happens a little bit in this book. Happens a little bit in this book. I'm kind of preparing the way. Mm. Um, but it will be big time next book, unless they change it again. The problem <laughs> with the police is they keep... I, I went to the, this new police headquarters and I was able to talk to a lot of fairly high-ranking police officers. And I said, why do you make it so hard for all the mystery writers in Scotland? <laughs> We're just trying to earn a crust here, guys. And now we've got to try and explain to everybody, yeah, there used to be eight police forces, now there's only one. There used to be eight chiefs, now there's only one. The way we investigate stuff has changed. Where the cold cases are investigated has changed. And, oh, Lord, <laughs> it, they don't make it easy for you. Well, the arcane construction of the judicial system itself plays a, a bit of a role in this book, in that we have a man who's... It's hard to explain what even some of these people do. And yeah, I think really. that that's a really interesting aspect of British culture. I mean, British culture, I think, is is a big star in this book. Yeah. I mean, I th the thing is that Siobhan Clark is in charge of a... Well, she's, she's working for a murder investigation... And it's a it's a senior law officer retired who's been um, so they think it's a break in and they think he's just been attacked by the the burglar and killed. But it soon becomes obvious that it's, he's been targeted. Um, even because I, I you know I spoke to some lawyers and I said okay so give me a, who's who's the, no, sorry, who's the chief justice and what does this guy do and what does that guy do? They go oh this guy works for the British government this guy works for the Scottish government this guy makes these decisions she makes those decisions this is what they and I go whoa. It's just so convoluted. This is going to bore the reader to tears. So the best way to deal with that is to have Siobhan go, I have no idea who these people are or what they do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was asking cops, I said, do you know what, what, the, can he, you know, what the, the pecking order is between all these people? No, we've no idea what the pecking order is between these people. You know, we've no idea what's going on. It's just, it's just bureaucracy after bureaucracy. I thought, okay, well, fine. Siobhan will be as bamboozled by it as I am. <laughs> and that's the way to... to, to Present it to the reader in a in a an explicable and readable way. Just say, look, it doesn't really matter how all these people connect or what they do. All that matters is one of them is dead. <laughs> Let's find out why he died. The uh, one thing that I that I was really struck by in this book was uh, the difference in guns. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a gun plays a, a part in this book, and but the fact that it plays a part is. It's one gun. I mean, in America, yeah. you could buy that gun for a, a tenth the price that you'd have to pay in, in the yeah. UK. And it's really, it's an astonishing difference to just read that culturally. I, I, let me tell you something. When this new Police Scotland set up started, the chief, the new chief, decided that police officers in Scotland would routinely carry guns. They would carry arms. And this happened without the public being consulted on it. And then there was, you know, there was like a disturbance at a burger restaurant in Inverness and police were called and they had arms. And somebody pointed this out and the, the media got hold of it and said, oh, oh, you know what, the police are regularly carrying arms. And there was such an outcry that they decided to reverse that decision. Wow. You know, and in Edinburgh, I mean, until recently, I don't know if it's still the case, I'd have to check. But in Edinburgh until recently, there was one patrol car. This is a city of half a million people. One patrol car that officially had guns in it, <laughs> kept in a locked box. If an officer in that car, you know, if, if somebody, say somebody's found with a gun in an apartment, okay, they phone this, this patrol car, they say to the, 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 the officers on patrol, okay, there's an armed incident. They then have to phone up the chief 
and get permission from like a superintendent level or above to open the box and take the gun out and then go to the scene. And that's the way it was until very recently. It was there was almost, there was only one patrol car in Edinburgh with with any arms on board. You know, it's a pretty safe place. I don't know how many shootings have been in, in Scotland in the past year. I would guess a handful. And I would guess very few fatalities. There are guns. There's a lot of hunting. I mean, you know, you can go grouse shooting, which is like any bird. In the, mm -hmm. on, in the beginning of August, lots of rich people go out and shoot these birds with double barrel shotguns. Uh, and officer training, of course, for the Marines and stuff like that. But you can't, you can't go into a store and buy a gun. You know, you, you've, it's almost impossible to buy a gun. And we have plenty of crime, and we have plenty of crimes of violence, but the crimes of violence tend to be knives. And if you're using knives, there's a pretty good chance the person you've attacked might survive. Mm. So, you know, it's got to be taken on board. There's not many, you know, I've written 20 Rebus novels. Probably in a handful of them, there's been a gun. Because that's realistic to me. More than that would be a bit ridiculous. Boy, that's astonishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean. And, I mean, one of the guns in this book is there because somebody's brought it back from Afghanistan, the ex-army, whatever. And, and the other one is because an, an ex-police officer has got hold of a gun. And these, I can, I can imagine that happening. I can imagine that that's a way that these guns could enter the country. But in general, crime, I mean, you know, break-ins, burglaries wouldn't involve firearms. It's somebody with a baseball bat or somebody with a knife. When we last spoke, you, both you and uh, Rebus, were pretty agnostic on uh, Scottish independence. <laughs> Uh, that appears to still be the case with Rebus. I don't think Rebus is agnostic. I think he's against it. Mm. I mean, whenever any journalist in the UK asks me, you know, what do you th how are you going to vote or what do you think of independence? They say, well, Rebus would be against it. Siobhan Clark would be for it. And I'm like Malcolm Fox. I'm right in the middle. <laughs> still debating the issues right up until the last minute. Still debating the issues. Still trying to make my mind up. Yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary time, the time of the referendum on independence. And the vote was a lot closer than people thought it would be. It was 55-45. The issue hasn't gone away. The The National Party are still flagging it up as a possi you know, the possibility of having another vote in, in, as soon as next year. As soon as next year, we might be voting again for independence, especially if the United Kingdom voted to come out of Europe because mm. apparently we've been promised a vote on that. And the feeling is that Scots overwhelmingly would vote to stay in Europe. But if England voted to come out, that would be problematic and the, the National Party would see that as a mandate to have another independence vote um, because they think Scots would, be much, would, would prefer to stay in the European Union but come out of the United Kingdom than stay in the United Kingdom but come out of the European Union. We'll see. I mean, it's very volatile at the moment, and, uh, um, you know, I don't know. Agnostic's quite a good word. Life's too short to, get, to, get fretted, to, to be fretful <laughs> about these things. I let Rebus do my fretting for me. One of the things I think that I, I love so much about the mystery genre is the way that you can offer readers uh, pleasure and uh, reading pleasure, a kind of pleasure that you can only experience as a reader. And one of this happens with in mysteries when you're reading along and all of a sudden as readers, we know something that that the other people in the narrative don't know. We can put together things that they can't. And then on the other hand, you'll kind of leapfrog back so that they will know things will be happening that we don't know about. And that's an interesting way to tell a story, that kind of tension and release. Is that, is that natural or do you kind of go through and uh, 
orchestrate that a bit? Um, yeah, I guess it's a mixture of things. I mean, sometimes it comes naturally and sometimes you have to go back and do it in the second or third draft because you've not done it satisfactorily in the first draft. I mean, how much information you hold back is, 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 is in, it's an interesting, it's a moot point if you're, if you're writing a mystery novel, is when are you going to release this information? What I found difficult in this book was who knows what at which particular time. I, I kept, because I was writing it very quickly, the first draft, I'd say, hang on a minute, has Rebus told anybody about this yet? And, and if he's told Siobhan, has Siobhan told her boss? And, what's her, and does her boss need to know? And so when you're when you're when you're in the middle of the when you're writing the book, you're never very sure um, how all this stuff's going to connect up. I don't know. I, it's it's not a science. I don't find writing a book a science. There is an art to it, mm. and often I just trust to the muse. The muse will get me there in the end. And the story oftentimes seems to know. It's bizarre, but the story knows more than I do. You know, there's a there's a kind of there's a there's a, a thread that I'm not seeing when I'm writing the book until near the end, and I go, oh, hang on a minute, okay, so this is where you wanted me to end up, this is where you wanted Rebus and the other characters to end up, this is how this story connects to that story. Maybe sometimes this, you think the stories will connect and they don't. I mean, there are a couple of plots in this book, the gangsters coming out of Glasgow, that doesn't really connect to the, the case that Siobhan Clark is working on, except tangentially, and the same cops are trying to investigate both. So sometimes you think there might be connections and there aren't, and sometimes there are connections where you didn't really see them until near the end. It's fun. I mean, I think it's fun. Most crime writers I know don't really know what they're doing. I mean, everybody, every, anybody who doesn't, anybody who reads or doesn't read mystery novels thinks you must know the end before you start. You must know the end, and you go, "No, we don't." It's not like doing a crossword puzzle. I mean, it's not. You know, it's we really. It's not geometry. It's kind of magic. It's magic. The story has a shape that you will only begin to see when you write the story. And many, I've interviewed lots of crime writers at festivals and things. Many of us don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. And people find that really hard to believe. Then you get a writer like James Elroy, who has to plan it out in minute detail before he can start. He has to know everything that's going to happen before he can start writing the story. But I would say the majority of crime writers I've spoken to are the opposite. We make up as we go along. Narrative is a matter of motion, I think, as, a, as opposed, it only exists when you're moving, not when you're standing still. Yeah, and there are, you know, there's always going to be accidents. There's going to be lovely, <laughs> there's going to be lovely serendipities, mm -hmm. things that will come along. You go, oh, okay, that, that's great. I didn't know that was going to happen, but that makes it a much better book. But these happen, I don't know, do they happen by chance? Is it a muse up there keeping an eye on us all, making sure all the writers know what they're doing? I don't know. And the nice thing about being a writer is, of course, you're just a really a child who's not grown up yet. We don't. We never grow up. <laughs> We're still playing. Let's pretend role-playing games with our imaginary friends. Well, uh, one of the roles that you play in this book is, you know, the you play with the pleasure of power relationships, and I, you know, the way the father and son relationships, but also the professional relationships. And I'm thinking of the different levels of power that each of these police have. John Rebus, on one hand, while he has no actual power to do anything, power of the state to do anything, he has a lot of presence that counter countermands, you know, uh, what he can, what other people will be able to do. He has a lot of freedom in this book. I mean, mm. there, when I decided that he would have retired, this is it, he's gone now, he can't come back. Mid-60s, that's it, he's gone, he's no longer a cop. Okay, so he's not got his warrant card, his badge anymore. So the, 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 the great thing about him used to be that nobody, you know, that every door was open to him because he was a police officer. That's no longer the case. He's got to try and persuade people to talk to him now. 
because he's, he's a civilian. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he can break as many rules as he likes. <laughs> he's no longer a cop. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to pay attention to the to the bosses anymore. And and he's got all the skills that he had when he was a detective. He's still got the same skill set. He's just having to use it in a different way. But you know, there's some nice little bits in the book where he goes to try and interview the daughter of a journalist, and she's going, "Are you are you a cop?" He's going, "Well, I'm kind of working for the cops." And she's going, "Well, have you got an ID?" Well, not really. And and he's going to got to persuade her that he's a, an okay guy to talk to. So that's quite fun to sort of take Rebus out into the cold, hard world where he's no longer got the power that he used to have, but he's still got the presence. As you've suggested, he's still got, he's still got the charisma and he's still got the chops and he still wants the answers. So if you don't give them to him one way, he's going to find them some, some other way. He still needs to gnaw away at that bone to get to the truth. There's a, a touch of menace to him, I think, that people don't want to see. <laughs> it's true, although he has, you know, I mean, a little bit like Cafferty. These are guys who, are gen- you know, who in, 10 books ago would have used their heft, their <laughs> physical presence to intimidate. Mm-hmm. But they can't do it so much anymore. Right. In a previous book, Rebus almost has a fight, a physical fight with Malcolm Fox. And Fox sort of looks at him and goes, really? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm 20 years younger than you. Are you sure you want to do this? And Rebus suddenly comes to the realisation he can't win fights all the time anymore. Mm. 20 years ago he would have won it, but he can't win it now. He's got to use guile and he's got to use his street smarts. So he's, he's, he's changing and, and Cafferty's the same. You know, there's menace. I think you're right. There is menace and there is physical presence. But these guys are not as intimidating as they would have been five or ten books ago. So they've got to, they've got to change the way they deal with the world. They're getting older. Yeah, we're all getting older, man. Mm. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and all our heroes are dying. What's going on? It's, it's You know, every time I, I, I put on Twitter, another great rock star has gone. It's scary. You have an interesting kind of triangle here, or maybe it's a quartet, with Siobhan, Malcolm, and Rebus. And there's... A, it's not exactly, you know, there's something of a, it's not exactly a love triangle. Do you, I, I, it's, a, it's fun to read. I've never allowed it to become that. Mm. I, in the early days when Siobhan was introduced, a lot of fans of the book said, oh, you know, her and, and Rebus are going to become an item. And I went, well, that's not going to happen. Mm. I mean, A, there's a big age gap between them anyway. Which right. didn't, but also, it would, it would just muck up their working relationship. How could they work together? Right. And I just didn't think it would be very satisfactory for either of them to get into a relationship. So what Rebus has got is more of an avuncular thing. Mm-hmm. He, he wants to protect her, even though she doesn't need protecting. Right. But he feels like an uncle towards her. So when he finds out that Fox is spending some time with, with, with Siobhan Clark... Um, Rebus wants to know what kind of friendship it is. <laughs> you know, you better not hurt her. You better do the right thing by her, etc., etc. So he's got that going on. And of course, Malcolm Fox, Malcolm would never hurt Siobhan. And they've not, I mean, they can't really, they've not physically brought their relationship to any kind of consummation. They're more kind of buddies. They're mm-hmm. buddies who get to hang out together and talk about a case after the working day's finished and maybe eat a meal, watch a movie, relax. And they feel comfortable and safe in each other's company. There's one scene where they're sitting watching TV and and Fox realises that she's asleep. She's just fallen asleep next to him because she feels comfortable. You know, he won't mind if she does that. Mm. Um, and I like that. I mean, I think that's a kind of, you know, detectives do often get into these very close relationships with each other because they feel like family is like a family. Right. 
And um, and to me, that is realistic, but I don't want to take it any further. And that, well, what's nice is that the readers feel that too. We're comfortable with them that we don't have to kind of, you know. Yeah, I mean, one of the early Rebus books, I think it was the third book, there was a sex scene in it where Rebus is down in London. He, he gets a woman into bed with him. And, I, and my editor said, oh, geez, really? He said, my, he said can we just stop at the bedroom door, please? <laughs> and I said, what, you mean you can write a thriller with no sex? And he went, yeah. I said, okay, well, that's a lesson learned. <laughs> he said, just let, you know, let the, let the reader use their imagination. Stop at the bedroom door. And I thought, great, because it was a really awkward scene to write. So that scene got cut. I said, the, the one and only scene of Rebus having sex in the whole series got cut. And does it still exist somewhere in one of my files? Maybe. But hopefully it will never, it'll never see the light of day. You can use it to blackmail them to keep showing up for your, you <laughs> novels. You have this character with this big lifespan. And you've been uh, busy not writing just novels but short stories. You write them. Uh, and that's a very different gig for a mystery writer. I mean, the novel is a very good form for mysteries because you can – complicated you can it's pleasurable to read but mysteries are also you know well born Sherlock Holmes are all short stories yeah. talk about writing the, the Rebus short stories well I mean I only write Rebus short stories when somebody asks me to do it mm -hmm. I don't do it for fun I do it if somebody if, and usually it's a newspaper or a magazine maybe their Christmas edition they say we'd love a, a Rebus story for Christmas can you bring in a pantomime can you bring in the Christmas lights can you bring in Father Christmas, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, sure. And they're often lighter in tone than the novels. Um, there's, there's a lot of fun in them. And we get to see different aspects of his character, I think. The, I mean, the short story per se, the, the crime short story, the mystery short story, is, 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 is a challenge because it has to be, there's got to be brevity. Mm. You've got to hook the reader straight away. And at the end, there's got to be a lovely little twist. There's got to be a twist at the end. And once you've got the twist, that's great. You can just get the story written. Uh, and I've always had a lot of fun writing short stories. I just did one. For, it's not a Reba story, but the last story I wrote was for a, a magazine called New Statesman uh, in the UK, and it was for their Christmas edition. And it was about a reality game show, like Big Brother, mm. gone bad. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that because that was a nice little satirical swipe as well as having a... It was Christmassy, and it was set in December. But it wasn't jolly, shall we say. <laughs> um, but it's, quite, it's fun. I mean, I love doing it. The nice thing about writing a short story, they were the first things I'd, I mean, you know, I wrote song lyrics and poems when I was a teenager. But before I ever tried writing a novel, I did write lots of short stories. And the pleasure is that they can be done in a couple of days, mm. you know, or even a day sometimes. Um, and you sit and you look at it and you go, there's an artifact. There's something that nobody's ever done before. Nobody has ever written those words down in that order before. I've created something that nobody's ever created before, and I've done it in a day. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, I just think that's extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary that with 26 letters of the alphabet, you can write a sentence that's never been written before. Or a fabulous novel like uh, your latest novel. You have a recent collection of short stories. The beat goes on. I think of it as like uh, the John Rebus singles. <laughs> It was a stopgap. I was taking a year out. I wasn't going to write a novel. My publisher said, well, can we collect together all the Rebus stories and put them in a chronological sequence? Because many of them were in magazines and mm -hmm. nobody, you know, were forgotten about or even written for radio, BBC Radio in the UK and they'd been forgotten about. And it was just nice to get them together in chronological sequence and see me changing as a writer 
as well as Rebus changing as a character. And it's a you know a short story is a lovely thing. You're on a commute, a twenty minute commute, a thirty minute commute. You can get a story read, mm -hmm. and you know I mean in a, in a way that isn't possible with a novel. Um, you're having to remember from the book. You pick it up again. You have to remember what you've read before the previous day. But with a short story, bang, you've got it done. And I just love them. I mean, you know, when I started out, I thought you could make a living writing short stories, but sadly, it just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, I would love it if you could, except it's a lot of ideas. I mean, mm -hmm. one good idea can get you a novel, um, but you need one good idea for a short story as well. And there's been short stories I've written and thought I could have, I could have got a novel out of that mm -hmm. if I tried really hard. The first short story in that collection is set early in Rebus's career. And I was thinking that, that made me think that there's nothing stopping you from writing a Rebus novel set 20 years ago, writing a, a, a historical Rebus novel. Is that something that you've considered? I've considered it, and I've kind of decided not to do it mm -hmm. because of the amount of research that would be involved. <laughs> I mean, it's writing, you're writing historical fiction. Exactly. You know, I mean, uh, the the uh, standing in another man's grave was about something that had happened like ten, fifteen years ago, and I had somebody um, taking photographs and sending them on a on a cell phone, and when I checked, it couldn't be done. Mm. I mean, like five <laughs> five years ago, you couldn't you could do it on a, a over a short, you know, if somebody was standing next to you, you could do it through Bluetooth, mm -hmm. but you couldn't do it over a distance. Mm. Send somebody a photograph from your cell phone. Um, so I had to change it. I had to change the chronology of the book. And so, you know, think about it. If I'm going back 20, 30 years to when Rebus was young, how much did a pint of beer cost? What kind of clothes were people wearing? Which football teams were doing well? And what music were people listening to? What technology was available? What technology wasn't available? All that stuff would take a lot of time. And it would be fun to do the research. But when you try to do a book a year, which is mostly what readers want from their mystery novelists, I, I, you don't always have an awful lot of time to do that research. <laughs> I've been speaking with Ian Rankin. His latest book is Even Dogs in the Wild. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.